0: Ah, uh, am acres and acres and we've, we've managed to make it through the smog and all that sort of stuff this morning, three of us anyway, into the studio, and what's going on here, I'll stick my microphone up a bit, and uh, Meg Kimber's pressing the buttons. Okay? Morning. How are you? How are you? Good. And Eugenia Koshubchenko is over there pressing. No, she's not pressing buttons. Pressing nothing. (laughs) Good morning. (laughs) Hopefully, pressing guests with with probing and difficult questions. (laughs)
2: Nice one.
0: Um, And I'm Kevin Healy, and it is City Limits, and it is the um, third Wednesday of the month, which makes it our Housing Day, and. and um, Fiona York from Housing for the Aged Action Group is going to be coming in about halfway through. But the first half of the program, we're talking to someone else, Eugenia.
3: Yeah, we're going to be talking to Jackie Alexander, who is a researcher uh, at the School of Architecture and Design at Monash. And she's going to be telling us how Airbnb is affecting housing in Melbourne.
0: Right. That sounds really good. Really yeah. Good. I
4: read the, the article that Eugenia sent through... Um, on the email. Yep. <laughs> so Which you, I you, haven't you, read you, because you, guess what? Yeah.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> Newfangled email thing. Oh,
0: pour tea while you're <laughs> chatting away. And it's amazing how
3: you manage to function as a journalist, Kevin, without any kind of telecommunications. <laughs> this is not <in> the days <laughs> I've got a telephone
0: and a postbox. But didn't you send <laughs> telegraphs tel- about
4: the articles? Is that what you did?
0: Yeah, I do that, and I also <laughs> use blankets and smoke a bit.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Carrier pigeons. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, but there's a lot of vacancies in Melbourne, which we know anyway, because of investment properties. Um, so, But it was really interesting to see that there's also a lot of vacancy because properties like whole houses might be listed on Airbnb but only used... A month or two of the year, oh. and the rest of the time they're vacant. So. Yeah, yeah. And and speaking of housing, um, after the show today, there's a live cross to Joe p- Parliament House. Yeah, Parliament
0: housing House. issue. Yeah, I hope um. they survived yesterday's storm. Okay, mm. yeah. The steps
4: of well, I hear it was brief. I was fly, trying to fly into Melbourne at that point. Mm.
0: It was yeah, it was fairly brief, but but it was really you know heavy, heavy, heavy rain, um, yeah. and yeah. I was in Brunswick, so probably part of it was getting much the same weather at that stage. I would have thought, but um, yeah, and sure there was high was. winds for a while, but yeah, mm. so it was pretty nasty. But it, and, and you know it caused um, it caused havoc because that sort of flash flooding does. I mean, when you get that much water so quickly, yeah. So and hard to believe the public transport system cracked up anyway. That's another question. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Speaking of um, falling through the cracks, uh, the um, no, there's a headline there in the Herald Sun: "Victims fall through cracks." We won't worry about that too much. I just wanted to mention to you, though, that um, in the Sunday and the Saturday paper last week, there was a front page story by Karen Middleton uh, about Scott Morrison. where he worked, he worked before he went into Parliament. He was director of managing director of Tourism Australia back in 2006, and she said she was sacked at that time. We should come up with stuff. An Auditor-General's report completed 10 years ago, which has escaped public scrutiny until now, reveals that in the period leading up to Morrison's dismissal, his agency faced a series of audits and a review of its contractual processes ordered by the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet amid serious concerns about its governance. The Auditor-General's inquiry into Tourism Australia, which followed these reviews and was conducted after Morrison's departure, reveals information was kept from the board, procurement guidelines breached and private companies engaged on contracts worth $184 million before paperwork was signed and without appropriate value for money assessments. The Australian National Audit Office report examines three major contracts that Tourism Australia signed while Scott Morrison was Managing Director. It criticises processes in all three cases, but especially the contracts for global creative development, advertising campaigns that is, and media placement services. Ten years since the audit and 13 years since the contracts were signed... Those two completed contracts appear not to be listed on the government's Aus Tender website where all contracts are required to be available for public viewing, and it goes on. But that's just interesting, mm. given the man became treasurer. <laughs> uh,
4: mm. We should have got so, Pamela Anderson to be our Prime um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: Or this man. And again, last week we mentioned about someone we had to raise money for. Who did we hit last week? Oh, it was the poor bloke... Um, Graham Watson, wasn't it the um, the adviser to Kelly O'Dwyer on industrial relations, who hit with a tax bill? Oh, that's well, right. well yeah. there's even worse news this week. Worse news. Um, Crown Casino, they're because of problems with Chinese um, high rollers, etc., and they're laying off a bit because of world financial problems.
4: Oh, and China's uh, like put a cap on what you can yeah, take out of the exactly mm-hmm.
0: the share the share price has slumped and. And poor, oh, poor Jamie Packer. I'm really sorry for him, <laughs> man. He he he's wealth decreased by 824 million in the last couple of weeks oh, because of no. that uh, slump. Yeah.
3: What percentage of that is well, that of his total
0: income? He's, 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 his stake in his stake in, uh, in in the company now is down to 3.7 billion. That's all what's worth. Oh my so gosh. So maybe another you know a bit of a hat mm. around for
2: Jamie <laughs>
0: uh, just to help him out. Uh, this one is uh, is not exactly a, an amusing story either. A fleet of lethal, remotely piloted Reaper drones, capable of dropping Hellfire missiles. Hellfire, what a name for it! Mm. Will be bought is, is by the. that the, the name es- of the missile? That's the name of the missile. With a capital H. You've got to spell it with a capital H like saying God with a capital G, will be bought by the Australian Defence Force, or Her Majesty with a capital H, of course, that's right, um, <laughs> Australian Defence Force in a major boost to its aerial arsenal. American company General Atomics, what a name, mm. has been Atomics' sending out hellfire has been chosen to deliver the multi-billion dollar con- multi-million contract for the ADF's first armed unmanned aerial vehicles. The ultra-quiet, low-radar drones can stalk a target for up to 14 hours and can drop 2 tons of ordnance. Ordnance including hellfire missiles and laser-guided bombs with pinpoint accuracy. Mm-hmm. The drones will watch and protect ADF troops on the ground and be used by reconna- in reconnaissance missions for search and rescue, etc., etc. Christopher Pine, our Minister and Defence Industry Minister Chobo, will announce the award. The $263 million contract went out. The other company trying to bid for it was Israeli Aerospace Industries, and the drones will be built in California. However, the exact number to be delivered under the contract was confidential. I wonder why. I've got no idea. These new aircraft will provide enhanced firepower and intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance support, Pine said. Medium altitude, long endurance, remotely powered aircraft have a far greater range than smaller remotely powered aircraft and can continuously observe an area of interest for much longer than manned reconnaissance aircraft. Drones allowed commanders to make informed decisions faster while providing the option to conduct strike and reconnaissance missions without risking the safety of aircrew. The aircraft will be operated under the same laws of armed conflict, international human rights laws and rules of engagement as manned aircraft, he said. Now, I'm sure the wedding parties and people in Pakistan and Afghanistan just love the, uh, the human rights aspects of being mm. hit, by, hit mm. by drones, pressed by buttons in Washington. That's mm. good to know. Mm. But this is the bit I can't work out. We're paying this American company, and these American contracts usually mean as it builds up, you pay them more and more because they just change and say, look, we've got to do something else or something else happened here. Yeah. Right. Chobo said the project provided opportunities for Australian industry. This is a great opportunity for Australian industry and demonstrates Australia's world-class capability to support cutting-edge technologies. Now, which bit of buying them from America supports <laughs> our cutting-edge technologies and showing how good we are?
4: Yeah, I mean, I I can't remember where I read this, but I have heard that the uh, arms manufacturing industry is a very strong lobbyer at this election and Mm. have come Mm. forward in a way that they haven't been before or maybe they're more visible or something Mm. like that. But, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we had like a really strong investigative journalism sector, Inter- sector yeah. in yeah. Australia and could actually yeah. interrogate this a little bit more Where and have more information. From? Yeah. Mm.
0: Well Pine wants Australia to be a leader in, in exporting yeah. Um, weapons, mm. of, um, merchants of death, weapons. It's wonderful, yeah. yeah. yeah but this, awesome. this one will bring tears to your eyes. Um, it's about Scott again, Scott Morrison. Uh, I'm
4: already crying. <laughs> yeah, well, the tea wasn't that bad, was it? Um,
0: the, Morrison once dropped to his knees in tears while agonising over the future of Rohingya refugees, saying he wanted to look these people in the eyes before deciding their fate. He carved his well,
4: Nauru or yeah, the sto- this,
0: this story in the uh, Saturday Age the other way car- said he points out he carved his political career as a tough-talking immigration minister in the Abbott government and implemented Australia's hardline stance against asylum seekers. But speaking at a lifeline event yesterday, Morrison, an evangelical Christian, said he visited asylum seekers being held at Nauru and Manus Island and sat in the middle of a camp in Myanmar with thousands of Rohingya refugees, but also yeah, Burmese yeah. refugees asked to confirm if he had been on his knees in tears at the plight of refugees he said of course i have why shouldn't i be these aren't easy issues so uh, i would have thought he could get off his knees and bring him here no. <laughs> Now, the good news is the Herald Sun for the last week has been maintaining – we mentioned last week how there were all these headlines about the Greens and we got the, thought there was a pattern developing yeah, here. Yeah, apparently
4: – oh, this is breaking news. The Greens are the most sexist party, apparently. Ever? So, ah. mm-hmm, yeah, and I'm sure they – I mean, oh, my God. They couldn't ah. even try to be as, mm. like – gender unequal <laughs> as as Labour and Liberal are. Yeah. This,
3: I was reading this morning about the sticker war that's mm. happening in Brunswick, apparently, with the, with Labour and Greens kind of putting accusatory stickers on each other's mm. candidates' posters. Oh, my God. And that's one of the issues that mm. keeps cropping up, apparently. Well, there's
0: a, a woman who's, I'll be told, is just a front for the Liberals. She puts them second and she puts the Greens last on her ticket. And people who had Greens things on their fences over the... Uh, on Sunday, they all came. They were all torn down overnight, and her thing was put up on poles around now. What? Someone could be setting her up, so i not going to yeah. say absolutely it's her. But um, mm. you know, it's, it's significant that someone who puts the greens ninth, they were all not only torn down but taken away, so they can't even be recycled. Oh. And her mm. stuff put around. So it's getting pretty dirty out there. Mm. Yeah. But yes. it's interesting in, in Morton Bunswick because you know I live there. I don't know. Do you live else? I'm no,
3: about no. to live there. All oh, you know,
0: right. Okay. Well. Um, I hadn't really noticed particularly, because I don't follow these things, I'm too interested in these things, but um, uh, people tell me that the Labor... When it, when it was pointed out, I have noticed it since, that we haven't had that mass Labor Party stuff we normally get, and it, there's an indication there people say that they've already given up the fight uh-huh. and don't think they're going to win it.
4: Because yeah. who, who's the incumbent
0: there? Uh, the incumbent is J- Jane Garrett, but she's... I you know, had trouble in the AOP and she's now running her upper house seat. And there's a uh, union woman, I think her name's Cindy O'Connor, who's running for the Labor Party. And the Greens, Phil Reed, a bloke called Phil Reed, and everyone thinks he's going to win it. We I mean. I mean, he might get a surprise Saturday night, but at this stage, people think he's going to win yeah.
4: Yeah. And um, Northcote's already mm. green and uh, there's another electorate that's has a greens. Yeah, well, Melbourne of course. Member. Melbourne. Melbourne, Melbourne yeah. lower
0: house, Peran, um, yeah. and Northcote and then they and there's a there's some you know, Richmond this time could go to, to Kathleen Moltsan. Yeah. So the um, Greens
4: are trying. Uh, they anticipate that they might get the balance of power.
0: Maybe, yeah. yeah. Um, That'll be exciting. And the upper house, I think, uh, interesting one's the upper house. The the socialist ticket in the upper house, and mm. hope they um, they may get get a candidate up. Mm. Let's hope they do. Yeah.
4: Mm, that would be good That's, for housing. Well, That's yeah. one of the strongest
0: ones. Yeah, exactly. All those things. Um, and I think it's wonderful that um, the leader of the Liberal Party, whose name everyone forgets. Um, Uh, who something, something who, something or who something, who who. (laughs) Anyway, he's some sort of guy. Um, And um, he wants Victorians would be able to judge their judges by comparing their sentencing records, so one of his promises is that judges' judges' sentencing records and sitting times and how long they took to give a decision, etc., is all going to be made public every three months, every single judge and magistrate. Will be. This that, is
4: in the state uh, election. The liberal, yeah, well, he's promising after uh,
0: should he win, and I, I this is he's the leader, and I would have thought that. You know, everyone in Victoria is thinking, "I'd love to know the judges' records and the new and magistrates." Absolutely. And yeah. I mean, I
4: don't mind what my rent is. No. I just want to know <laughs> yeah. what the judges. Are, that's right. Exactly.
0: <laughs> exactly. And it's interesting that in um, Peran, which the the Greens won last time by a handful of votes, it was in fact 277 votes, 277. Wow. So it's very, very, very tight. Very tight. They ran a picture. And a, a great story about this doctor, Katie Allen, who's running for the Liberal Party in Paran. Isn't it amazing on the Herald Sun? Um, <laughs> it just picked that seat to put it out. And <laughs> I, I, I loved this one on Monday. <laughs> they across the bottom, election exclusive one, Labor's baby bonus, so it gives the Labour policy. Election-exclusive three, judges to face music. That's the one about the judges and good old Matthew. And in the middle, election-exclusive two, fresh greens, crisis. No policy, just crisis.
3: (laughs) In bold as well. I like that. (laughs) The other ones are just like normal. So it's just
0: it's just lovely, isn't it? Oh, it's so much fun to be had. <laughs> and of course the other week when they had all over the front page the fact that the Greens woman was forced to resign over so I can't remember why now, but something yeah. or other. And when the Liberal woman last week was forced to resign over rants about Muslims, it made page ten of the Herald Sun. That was pretty yeah. good. Um yeah, so that's it. But another headline in the in the um, Financial Review yesterday, or no, it must have been yes, it was yesterday or the day before. Anyway, whatever day, um, it uh, I found it interesting because it said CBA to turn fully green by twenty thirty. CBA being the Commonwealth Bank. Mm. And that same day, I thought, well, they've obviously the 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 CEO of the bank, Compton, his name is. Um,
4: the, CEO, the new one. The
0: bloke who's been in the witness box for the last two days, oh, who's okay. uh, at the Royal Commission. Yeah. Um, he, um, what's his name again, Common? Matt Common. Um I thought, well, he's obviously decided to bring this fully green by 2030 forward because I looked at the telly and sitting in the witness box under fire, I thought, my God, doesn't that, that man look green? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah. so I think he's, he's, he's on the ball. Good there. He's, yeah, that's right. Good and they've on given that. themselves
3: some time, right? 12 yeah. years.
0: Right. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Manager <it> by then. <laughs> yeah. right. Well, everything, it's like the state government. I mean, they're always going to make public transport totally accessible in 15 years time and yeah. it's been 15 years all those years the future's always uh, somewhere in the future and the something. future's always 15 years right. away <laughs> and, and there's something else now something to do with the upfield line the other day someone pointed out that the government's promised something will happen within 15 years and i thought well that's the usual time yeah. <laughs> have we got a guest yes, yes oh there well is, okay, yes. i'll bring yeah. the guest in i'll stop raving
4: all righty mm-hmm. we'll do a public announcement
3: Alright, we're back on City Limits and um, so today we have the pleasure of speaking to Jackie Alexander. Hello, Jackie. Hi. (laughs) So Jackie's a Senior Lecturer at the Monash School of uh, Design and you're in today to talk about your research on how Airbnb is affecting Melbourne's housing. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, great. Um, Do you want to just start by telling us a little bit about your research and why it's so
1: important? Sure. Um, So my PhD research has been looking at Airbnb and the effect that it's having um, on the city but also in housing and a particular case study I've been looking at is Melbourne and part of the reason this is a sort of interesting site to me is because we've been um, we're just coming off the back of a housing boom so we've had a lot of construction in um, in domestic um, particularly high-rise domestic architecture recently and that seems to have kind of coalesced with the introduction of airbnb in melbourne so we're starting to see some interesting things happen yeah one of the things that
4: i saw in your um paper that eugenia sent to me was that um there's an indication that people or developers are building houses which are basically not fit for people to live in in normal conditions like as a full-time tenant but that are just specifically being used for airbnb
1: Yeah, I think in Australia there's a sort of attitude to housing um, as investment that's quite ingrained and particularly in the last few years, you know, the economy's been carried by population growth and the housing boom. And so I think what's different in Victoria as opposed to somewhere like New South Wales is that we haven't had minimum standards to protect high-rise residential development. So things like minimum room sizes, um, natural light to bedrooms um, has not been mandatory and architects involvement hasn't been mandatory either which mm-hmm. is different from New South Wales. So we're starting to see a lot of um, mm-hmm. I suppose over development of um, you know poor, poor quality housing really in the in the city and when you start to look at the patterns of Airbnb and map that out against the kind of patterns of New development, you do see a kind of correlation between those two things. Mm, that's and, so interesting. Yeah, and I think when you when you start to dig a bit deeper and you start to have a look at some of the listings that are available, you start to see things like um, overcrowding in a lot of the apartment buildings in the city. Um, it seems to be that Airbnb is kind of um, operating as kind of rather than very short term um, leasing. Opportunities for tourists, also medium-term leasing opportunities for maybe new migrants and um, people who might not be able to access the normal rental market. Mm. Um, and so you start to see, you know, almost like informal hostels happening and they're concent- they tend to be concentrated in a few very particular developments as well. So there's, mm. you know, certain towers that are, you know, mm. becoming quite prevalent for this sort of um these sorts of living conditions, really,
3: mm. and that's obviously problematic because those developments aren't subject to the same kind of regulation and safety requirements that a typical hostel would be required to have, right?
1: That's right. So, um, in a in a regulated hostel, you'll see things like um, a certain number of toilets mm. required per capita, um, and you know health and sanitation uh, laws that that prevent kind of um, this sort of overcrowding, mm. and so. It's, it's slipping under the radar a little bit and I've seen cases where there's up to eight people sharing a two-bedroom apartment wow. on Airbnb and they tend to be sort of operating as gendered dorms and that obviously has implications as well for things like fire mm. and emergency egress. So when you think about things like the Grenfell Tower mm. Mm. Um, and tragedies that can occur like that, if you've got serious overloading of apartment buildings, then there's a risk that people might um, you know really not be able to um, exit the building in an emergency which is kind of scary.
2: Mm,
3: yeah mm. Um, and so you've talked a little bit about all these developments that I guess are in the inner city these ones that are being used as kind of quasi hostels? Yeah
1: there are sort of outlying hot spots that seem to have come out of the study um, there were a few sort of um, shared room concentrations around Maribyrnong and Box Hill as well but the but predominantly they're in and around the city mm. in uh, near Southern Cross Station and also around the sort of top end of the city near QV. Mm.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I go to the market most Saturday mornings and I have a routine to get in there and back. But I'm coming home, I catch the tram on Peel Street um, and I sit at the tram stop and look at all... You know, I'm looking at billions of dollars of real estate. There's cranes everywhere, mm. there's high-rise everywhere. And in my way into the market, I... I run into homeless people sitting on Elizabeth Street and I think, my God, what a great society when we've got all that real estate there and there's people down below who can't even get a roof over their head. And you're talking about these places being vacant. I mean, surely. I know.
1: It's shocking, really. (laughs) And I think that's part of the research. I mean, part of my interest in this research is thinking about spatial equity Mm. because, at the other end of the spectrum, I've talked a little bit about the shared rooms problem, but at the other end of the spectrum, we have the, I'm not sure if you know, the entire home model, which mm. is effective. It doesn't require any physical sharing between people. Mm. It's just effectively apartments or sort of building stock that then um, is kind of operating as a timeshare. And the problem with that is that apartments in Victoria, because Airbnb is not regulated, apartments and houses in Victoria can be listed as entire homes Infinitely, that they're sort of exclusively being let Mm. in that manner, Mm. and that's taking available housing stock away from residents. Mm. Mm. So, sometimes, I mean, that's not so problematic if you're talking about a beach house down in Rosebud that's you know vacant for Mm. half the year, it's actually a kind of more efficient use of space potentially because you've got people cycling through. But where it becomes problematic is where it's concentrated in the inner city, and you're and there's already a kind of housing bubble Mm. um, and it's just inflating rental prices and all the rest. Mm. Mm. Through
4: an impression of scarcity when there really isn't, there's there's plenty of stock. Because the numbers in your article was that there's a total of 11,190 listings on Airbnb for the Melbourne area and of them 6,361
1: are uh, entire homes yes. being let as entire right. buildings, and so it's the vast majority. It's the majority, yeah. yeah. And um, this, I should say, this study was undertaken a couple of years ago, so it's likely yeah. to have shifted slightly. But I would, I would speculate that it's shifted towards entire homes, if anything. Mm. Yeah. And you had an estimate about how often those
4: homes were. Vacant, as I recall, is
1: that right? Yeah, they've typically... I mean, looking at the data that's been made available on Inside Airbnb, which is a uh, sort of activist Mm. uh, platform where the um, academic has kind of scraped the data from Airbnb. Mm. It tells a a bit of a story about how... how frequently these sorts of properties in Melbourne are being occupied and they have very low occupancy rates in the inner city. Mm. So that's that's where the problem is. Mm. So my research is sort of looking at, um, you know, we're, we're kind of, I think we've gone too far f- to sort of turn back on this technology in many ways mm. but at the same time um, we're, Melbourne's also lagging behind a lot of other cities in terms of regu- regulating mm. um, this phenomenon. Mm. And so... What kinds of challenges is this presenting for a city like Melbourne? And are there kinds of opportunities as well that we could sort of leverage to um, create benefits for residents if this is going to continue? Mm. So, that, yeah, I've been looking at kind of uh, ways to address some of these issues with my research. And mm. what are your recommendations? Well, <laughs> I think if, if you have any yet in your process. Yeah. <laughs> yes. no, I do. <laughs> Well, I'm, a, I'm a, um, my training is in architecture, so I suppose um, I've been thinking about the city in turn more holistically. So looking at the patterns that, um, that Airbnb presents in Melbourne, and thinking about the fact that you know, really the first step is kind of constraining Airbnb entire home usage in the inner city, um, and that's where it's most problematic. But when we think about um, the private room model, which is where you know I might have a spare room in my house. Um, and I might want to let it out to a guest, this could possibly work a little bit better if we were promoting that in the kind of middle suburbs because Mm -hmm. it's a much more responsible way of using Airbnb. It's sort of making space more efficient and it could also be considered as a way of addressing the problem that we have currently, which is that we have really large houses. Australia has some of the largest houses in the world But we have shrinking households, Mm. so we've got Mm. uh, a lot of empty nester households in the middle ring suburbs, single parents Mm. um, with children and parents with dependents more and more, you know, adult children living at home. Mm. So it's thinking about ways that maybe we could start to, if we've got this problem, that maybe we could start to think about home sharing in a much broader sense. And, um, you know, there's models that exist in New South Wales like a kind of granny flat out the back kind of model. And if this was done, if this um, sort of development was encouraged, sort of infill, small-scale infill development was encouraged, um, you know, in a kind of regulated and controlled way, then it could actually provide housing, small-scale housing opportunities for Australians and citizens first that could then be also offered to, you know, tourists every now and then as well. Mm. Um, But I think it's a sort of, it's got to be a sort of strategic and coordinated effort. Um, And at the moment, you know, Airbnb is bringing so much revenue into the state that I don't see it uh, really changing Mm. (laughs) anytime soon. Mm. But how does the
4: revenue get collected? Is um, Is it just sort of like, is there any benefit for governments not to regulate Airbnb, or is it just sort of like uh, money that's circulating in the economy?
1: Well, I'm not an economist, but I think the thing, the the reason why I think that it's there's the an opportunity around the private room model, is because um, you know the higher the densities that we have in the suburbs. Um, obviously the more rates that are being paid. And so then that creates um, greater pools of local funding to be able to fund local infrastructure and um, amenities for residents. Mm. So at least that um, you know economic dispers- dispersal of money that's coming in through the sharing economy mm. could then start to have... We could start to see benefits in the community. Because mm. at the
4: yeah. moment, that like in your um, article, you said that there was one owner, like one listing person listing things on airbnb that had like 81 properties or something oh, like yeah oh yeah
3: i really want you to talk about that example <laughs> oh it's a shocker
0: someone who cares about getting people into houses. yes obviously. that's it <laughs> lovely to see lovely to see oh
1: yes so um one of the things that came up through this so i've been using um oh. what we call gis data mapping which is a kind of cartography of data that um comes from this inside airbnb website and so what it does show is where there's hotspots um, and you can interrogate those anomalies. So by following that lead, I was able to find one um, Melbourne Airbnb host who had 81 properties and uh, in looking more closely at some of his listings, I discovered an 18-bedroom, 18 18-bathroom 18 house in inner city Melbourne <laughs> oh. <laughs> on an average-sized block. Oh. Um, and with a little bit of further digging and looking at and looking at the pho- photography that was available, it's quite a strange hybrid, a sort of somewhere between a hotel. So it has this hotel aesthetic um, in terms of the furniture and stuff like that, but it's effectively in terms of the plan, it's a one giant monster house. Um, and when you look closely, you can start to see things like exit signs and security cameras, and and so it's kind of this interesting commercialisation of domestic space—a mm. sort of you know sort of quasi-commercial, quasi-domestic space. Mm. And Mutant. can we
0: can we assume the appeal of Airbnb to, um, to to landlords is that they can charge more on the short-term basis than they would get on a regular weekly basis? Is
1: yeah, it, that's that right. And so looking at this house in particular um, with a bit more depth, it actually, uh, you actually begin to realise um, in following through planning and uh, building code regulations, you, I've sort of discovered that it's listed on the rooming house register of Victoria. Mm. And if you think about the amount that, they're char- that this host is charging per room, it's really not comparable to rooming house accommodation. Mm. It's not really pitched at rooming house accommodation. It's double the cost per night. Um, And on all accounts, it seems like it's uh, short to medium term tenants, Mm. like often contract workers and things like that who are in Melbourne for sort of longer periods of time that Mm. are using um, this kind of accommodation. But one of the scary things i think in terms of equity is that a lot of the time rooming houses have a a right to build kind of um scope so they're not required to go through the planning process in order to come to fruition um, because they're seen to be providing a community service Mm. and that's not the case in this particular example it did go through the planning process which raises a few more interesting questions Mm. so many questions
3: Mm.
0: it does indeed the rooming house regulations you talk about uh, those that apartment problem you also talked about earlier about virtually being used as a well, short to medium term rooming houses or whatever hostels. I mean, surely they should be brought under regulations at least, you know, rooming house style regulations at least, mm. um, I would have thought.
1: I think so. Well, I think, you know, the the monster house I was just talking about is is a slightly different situation because it's seen it's purpose-built effectively, like it, mm. it it's not being repurposed. Mm. So the hostels that I was talking about earlier tend to be just two-bedroom apartments that can't sell on the market. Or, or, you know, nobody wants to live yeah. for a long period of time in a in an apartment that doesn't have windows in the bedroom. So, yeah. but if you're putting up with it for maybe, you know, a couple of nights or two weeks...
0: But you mentioned one with, you know, eight people using one bathroom or whatever. I mean, that surely should come under some sort of regulation. I definitely, think. definitely.
1: Yeah. It's, it's you know, when it's being effectively used as hostel accommodation, yeah. it's not meeting them, you know, the requirements for a building of that type. So yeah. I think the difficulty is that a lot of these... Um, Listings are kind of flying under the radar and, um, you know, because they're temporal, um, they're sort of listed one day and gone the next. It's really difficult to kind of, you know, pinpoint them. You know, I think I'm, as far as I know, I'm the only person that's looking into this at the moment in in Melbourne. Mm. Um, uh, And
3: so with this 18-bedroom monster house, is is your kind of fear that this will become such a, um, uh, uh, like, Financially profitable thing to do that we'll start seeing more monster houses like this around the inner suburbs.
1: Well, I think there's a, I have a few concerns about it. The f- Yeah, that would be one, and um, I suppose following that line yeah. of thinking, the host does actually have an, a number of other properties that are similarly overblown in the same neighbourhood. Mm. Um, so then this one is the largest example, mm. but. Um, You know, there are others. So I would say there's a, you know, there are a few canny people maybe (laughs) in this area. We're going to have to to wind up, but
0: I'm sure that particular landlord will be leading the campaign against any changes to negative gearing too. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure.
1: (laughs) There's more
4: we could cover on this topic, but um, we have Fiona coming in from House of the Age Action Group. Thank Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. Thank Thank you very much
1: for having me.
0: Okay, and uh, moving on, we've got Fiona York from the Housing with the Ace Action Group in the studio. Fiona, welcome again. Hi. And um, and anything you wanted to talk about before we move on to something else? I mean, have you talked out? about the election yet? this election?
5: This will be very short. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Three days out. Um, we've just put some stuff up online about um, the different parties' policies on mm. housing and not just um, public and social housing, but also retirement housing. So if people want to jump onto our website and have a Look, we've compared the three major parties' policies on affordable housing and also on retirement housing ombudsman statements. Unfortunately, the Labor Party hasn't come to the party on the ombudsman, but Mm. both the Greens and the Liberal Party have. So that's good for the retirement housing residents that have been lobbying like crazy for about at least five years now. Mm. Um, So... Two down, one to go, and hopefully post-election there'll be some sort of announcement there. Mm. So that's one slightly positive thing that's happened out of this election, which is good.
0: Mm. Is there Mm. any move on the, um, when we've got Joe and Co at Parliament House Mm. Mm. steps at the moment, but on that particular issue of the privatisation of public housing, any move from any of the, apart from the Greens, I know they're on side. Greens,
5: yeah. So it doesn't seem, apparently, I didn't didn't catch this yesterday, maybe you guys did, Um, Bill Shorten made an announcement federally about Um, increasing the supply of community housing Um, but it seemed like it may have involved transfer of public housing stock so we'd have to look at the fine print to um, look at that one which I think is a bit dodgy obviously Um, but yeah in terms of the state government no it's all it's all knock them over Mm. rebuild them with only 10% increase which is not good enough at Mm. all.
0: Mm. And uh, anything else from your point of view at this stage I mean round. I guess the
5: re- the um, reformers of the RTA were good news this year. So um, the ALP have um, passed legislation which doesn't come into effect till 2020 to reform the Residential Tenancies Act, which has been really good news for our some of our clients who have been lobbying for it, particularly in caravan parks, um, because up until now there's been no compensation if if caravan parks close. Mm. And um we've seen, especially in Montana, you guys might have been following the mm. Wontana drama, there was hundreds of residents displaced um and with their entire life savings put into these very modest shacks basically or um little homes and had nowhere to go literally. And a lot of them ended up in public housing, which is not really um, you know, supposed to be used for people that actually have assets like a home. But the reality was they had nowhere to go. Um, there was no caravan parks that would take them. These weren't caravans in the kind of traditional mm. driving down the road type caravans. They were yeah. built up over years mm. um, and most of them were elderly people. So um, the Wanturna Residence Action Group and ourselves lobbied really hard to have recognition of those types of housing in the Residential Tenancies Act, particularly around compensation if they close and we lobbied the crossbenchers and they um they those amendments have been included so that's a really big win for particularly it doesn't help the residents now that have been affected but for any future caravan park closures um there is that compensation Mm. component in there which is really great that's
0: great Mm. yeah you mentioned housing affordability Mm. and um for ages, the the industry has been saying, "Well, we you know we definitely need to get the house of price of houses down. It's terrible. It's too expensive. We want affordability." Now that they're actually dropping in the market, the market's collapsing. They're all saying this is terrible for the economy. We have to get them <laughs> up again. Now, I have a bit of trouble with this one. Um, uh, what's going on? I mean, if if they're going down, surely that's making them more affordable. It's good. It's good.
5: Yeah, <laughs> is it though? Um, I don't know. I, there was a, did you guys catch the piece of research that came out the other day from A Huri that said? Actually, the cheapest thing to do is just build public housing. Don't come up with anything Mm. innovative or, you know, new models. Just build the public housing. Like you build public transport, et cetera, and it helps Mm. the economy. It wouldn't take
0: a lot of research to come up (laughs) with it, but they did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it's, uh, well, that, that, yeah, with the affordability thing, I mean, you mentioned affordability earlier. I mean, again, mm. they use that term, but it's absolutely relative, isn't it? Oh, really? yeah. As I talked about earlier yeah. about people on Elizabeth Street, I mean, affordability for them might be about three and six. Mm um so really it's it's a it's a meaningless term i would have thought and it's affordable really housing.
5: it's really meaningless when councils may you know require a developer to make a certain percentage of the development affordable and that usually just means below market price and if market price yeah. is a million bucks then that's, that's not really going to help is it no
0: 999 uh, grand yeah, so, yeah and we and big. here
5: we are being affordable <laughs> and those sorts of <laughs> parts of the of the developments are also usually the really crap ones down the back that nobody would want anyway yeah. so Mm. So, yeah, you really need to have some strict parameters around what affordability actually means and have government enforce it.
0: And We've also argued for years that government schemes that all seem to prop up all depend on the private sector to get get us out Mm. of a housing short crisis. Mm. I mean, that money should be going into what we... Here I say it again, public housing, Mm. for God's sake. Um, The the National Rental Affordability Scheme brought in under RUD about 10 years ago. It expires um, very shortly. Mm. It was a 10-year plan. And it allows developers to build, and if they rent it 20% below the market value, where they get government subsidies for it. But those subsidies are about to expire, and there's now a great fear that people who have been benefiting even from that 20%, Twenty percent, which doesn't mean much, mm. are going to end up having their rents increased or thrown out or whatever. So there's a crisis developing there, even mm. a, under a scheme where all that money should have gone straight into public housing anyway.
5: Yeah, it's, it's basically as a hidden subsidy for the private sector. And since when did the market fix these problems? Like we we know not to trust the market. Surely by now <laughs> hasn't worked. <yet>. Yeah, <laughs> won't work in the future. <laughs> what a shock! Oh, mm. a
0: bit shocked here. I mean, this people being bit disillusioned about the market but um, the, okay, the, the, <laughs> the, uh, what i found interesting in an article in the age about this um this sub this subsidy effectively come running out is that many of even though they're owned by private landlords are often a number of them you know developers who have a number of them uh community housing providers own about 40 percent of these properties um now I find that interesting, given mm. given that um, these are the same groups we're giving public housing to. Apparently, so yeah. they're, they're really involved in the market along the way.
5: Definitely, yeah. And I think I think the system's been set up to fail as well because they struggle to make back the money to you know give the loans that the government's given them back, and then that means they have to get people in as tenants that aren't the lowest income because they need to charge a percentage of the rent, which means that they favour kind of low-paid workers. Um, which I'm going to say low paid it's you know I guess it's not pension and the pension are the, are the clientele that we have like so all of our clients are basically on either Newstart or the age pension and anyone on Newstart is not going to be an attractive prospect as a tenant because 25% of Newstart is nothing mm-hmm. so yeah. where yeah. do those people go what are they going to do
0: uh, they're paying 110% yeah.
5: of their money on rent.
0: I'm going to take yeah. your question as rhetorical, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try no to answer solutions. that. <laughs> yes, we've <brought> already <laughs> <ours. laughs> asked. We've done that bit. Uh, now, uh, Maybe on they can find some of those yeah.
3: Airbnb accommodations yeah. that we are yeah, learning exactly. about well, <laughs> That's
0: really affordable. <laughs> mm, I mean, and the fact that I went mean, to a point that was raised that so many of these places remain vacant and there's all that, you know, there's just vacant. Properties everywhere, and yet we've got a housing crisis. It it is terrible. isn't
5: it? Well, it's actually not really a lack of actual housing. Really, mm. it's just a lack of affordability. Yeah, yeah.
0: That all the back to the market. That somehow you, there's a price on uh, having a roof over your head, which mm. should be a should be a, a right. Uh, Doug Cameron is the um, is the Labor Party housing and homelessness spokesperson. And he slammed the scrapping of this scheme, the National Rental Affordability Scheme, and said there were always issues, etc. Um, now, So we've got the Labor Party obviously saying they'd like to keep it going, um, keep subsidising the private sector. And he did say Labor will announce more housing and homelessness policies before the election. But would there be any clues as to whether they're going to be any good?
5: Um, well, they did announce a national housing strategy, which is... A first for a while mm. so it'd be interesting to see what that involves and what the detail is there but yeah apparently there's going to be an announcement before the end of the year around housing I know quite a few people in the housing homelessness sector are excited about the announcement but um I'd be reserving judgment until we actually get to look mm. at it and yeah. see what happens
0: and notice that um, the State Treasurer Tim Pallas mm. he's come out and said he, he thinks the housing market will pick up more quickly than people are predicting and so he's basing his budget on the fact there's going to be more income from housing, from you know, the, all, this, all the taxes they get out of housing. Um, but then he says that then we can spend the money on, and he goes through a whole list of things, including a, a litany of road projects across the state. But in the whole, thing, in the whole article I read where he made this point, housing didn't get a mention. Now, he's talking about housing only as a source of income, private housing, but housing itself didn't rate in any of his policies.
5: It's Uh, unbelievable, isn't it? (laughs) Well, the planning minister, Richard Wynne, is up for election on Saturday, along with a lot of them, and he only holds his seat by 1%, so (laughs) maybe people should have a think about that when they're voting. Which electorate's then?
0: Richmond. Richmond. In fact, last election night, up until about 10 o'clock, they were giving the seat to Kathleen Maltzah the Greens Mm. candidate, Uh, Mm. and then it swung again later in the night and she lost by a very narrow margin. But... She's running again, and there's a you know a chance that she could win at this time. Yeah.
5: Well, apparently, when he this is what I hear on the grapevine. I wasn't around, but apparently years ago he promised that inclusionary zoning would be part of his plan for the future as planning minister, and that dropped off the radar fairly quickly once in government. So it'd be nice if the if people um, I guess promises made at election time should be taken with a pinch of salt. But mm. I haven't heard much rhetoric around anything to do with housing in this election. So what,
4: what's inclusionary zoning?
5: It means that you need to include a, a percentage of um, affordable, in inverted commas, housing in all developments, rather than, you know, hundred percent to the private market. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Mm. Uh, and the question we've raised many times of, of government sites that are turned over to the public sector, is there, to the private sector, uh, uh, is there any move there to sudden for governments to say, okay, if we've got all this property, let's at least have some. Genuine public housing mm. on it, and um, which brings us to the other point, of course, that they've even stopped using the term public housing altogether now. It's yeah. just social or community or whatever.
5: Yeah, but I did notice that when the Labor Party made their announcement of a thousand new properties um, just prior to this election, that it was public housing which was for us a a small win because yeah like you Mm. say it's been um, community housing providers or social housing for so long which blurs the line a little Um, and the fact that they did make that announcement around public housing um, is a good thing a thousand obviously is not enough Mm. um, but at least the tenure is held in in and you know the land management and the tenancy management is with with the with the public which is what it should be Mm. if it's on public land
3: I know we've talked about this a lot on the show before, but could you maybe quickly explain the difference between community and social housing and public housing for people who are listening for the first time? Yeah,
5: so community housing um, and social housing can be used interchangeably, but sometimes social housing is used to cover both public and community. It's kind of annoying. Mm -hmm. Um, Community housing is run by community housing providers. They're not-for-profit organisations and they charge 30% usually of a person's rent and they also take the Commonwealth Rent Assistance Um, the public housing is 25% of the rent and it's run by the government, owned by Office of Housing. So the tenancy management um, is more... From our perspective, for our clients, it's much more clear-cut in public housing. So it transfers between houses as possible. The maintenance is a clear-cut system the rent setting is obvious and clear and the, and the leases are clear. Whereas community housing providers have a range of different ways of doing their tenancy and we're not quite sure to this day how it will work if people need to move around between, say one provider or another provider. Um, and 30% of the rent is the usual mm-hmm. rather than 25. And, and housing affordability is defined as 30% of your rent. So you're really on the edge of being affordable if, mm. if you're paying 30%. Most people in the private market, of course, are paying more like 80%. Mm.
0: Um,
5: but, yeah, so that's the difference.
4: So the community housing takes 30% of a person's total income mm-hmm. and then if that person, say, on New Start or a pension – um, they take thirty percent of their income and the entire rent assistance. That's right. That yep. So rent assistance is another kind of mm. subsidy. hidden bonus. Yeah, yeah. 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 And yeah. this that just goes straight from the government to straight to that's the, right from the yeah, federal from the government. Yep, straight
5: yeah. to the community housing provider. Yeah.
3: And these are the instances where people who are on New Start or the pension might have problems getting into their housing, and rather than a person who might be earning a low salary. Right? That's right. Because yeah. New
5: Start is so so low mm. yeah. that it's no one's going to make any money charging them rent. Yeah. Yeah. And the mm. community housing
4: has to sort of s- maintain itself somewhat. Like they, the, the organisers, the managers would have government funding but mm. there's also a constant pressure. I know from my time in community services, constant pressure to um, be self-sufficient financially
5: as a community organisation. Yeah, mm. and yeah. as far as I know, also pay back debts to the government, the loans in order to build the housing to start with. So wow. they're behind the eight ball already um, which puts a lot of pressure on them and it means that the tenancy selection... Mm. It's not necessarily from the top of the what's called the common weight list um, because the people at the top are the most vulnerable and the mm. most poor of course. Mm. Mm. So um, that's changing though there is there is some prescriptions around that um, more than there has been in the past, which is good.
0: That's interesting because always I and mean, we've always talked about the fact that they take people they feel can afford it rather mm. than those who can't. Mm. what changes are being made there that might force them to take people on lower income? They have so? to
5: as far as I'm aware, they have to take 75 percent of their tenants, from the common wait list oh. mm. um, and so that is good. But not all mm. of them have opted into that. So some of them are sitting outside the common wait list system, mm. um, with the Victorian Housing Register, and they have a separate application process, um, which means that for a person, the idea of bringing those two lists together was good because it meant that you had one application and you could be eligible for all of these different providers. But now, and most people jumped onto that, but some people, some providers still sit outside. Um, and you have to do a separate application, which gets really complicated, particularly if you've got low literacy or mm. you're an older mm. person that's not internet savvy, which are our clients. So it's it's a pro. It's a definitely a big process. Yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah, getting pretty serious. Um, well, you we, we want to wind us up
4: uh, in a minute, yeah, because we have to do the live broadcast. So, um, but yeah, we've got a couple more minutes, but it might right. be our last question. Okay. Yeah. Right.
0: Well, what's What's the last question? Pressures on. good <laughs> yeah, right. one. I always assume so, that you
4: have more things that you want to say, Kevin, that you never get to ask. Well, I, I you do. Want in, ask. I do. In yeah. fact, I, know, yeah. I think
0: it's worth commenting by the, on, on. This is just a, a fascinating one to me. Um, the, um, the Reserve Bank of Australia, with the, as prices are going down, they said a year ago the problem with housing was affordability, and it was too, 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 uh, you know, too unaffordable. Now he says the problem with the economy is housing is too affordable. So I'm sure if you um, – because that's going to cause other problems further down the economy, etc., etc. But I'm sure if you go along to those homeless in Elizabeth Street, they must be whooping it up knowing mm. that housing has become too affordable. Mm. Yeah. Good
5: <laughs> <laughs> news to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Joe, Joe just,
4: was talking yeah. about this on his live broadcast last week as I listened to it after the show, and um, – you know the reality is, if people can afford housing, then that's you know that's it's a, such a huge amount of everyone's income, like total mm-hmm. income. And yep. for people whose incomes are really low, it is completely impossible to mm-hmm. access housing. So yeah. we've like
5: priced people completely out of out of security, basically. Yep. So and it's also worth mentioning that once you're housed. Um, it's cheaper for you in terms of being able to manage all of the other health yes. issues that exactly, you might yeah. have, or anything else that yeah. comes along. Like housing is the most fundamental thing yeah. for well-being. So right. cost, what's cost really? Yeah. If you're showing
0: up at the hospital every five minutes, if you're a yeah. pension, pensioner yeah. paying rent you're in real trouble. If you're a pensioner, own your own house, you've got a chance of survival, I suppose. Yeah. That's about, look, before we go, then, if we're going to wind up very shortly. Um, Next week's program, hoping to mm. have Jen Hargraves, who works for women with disabilities, who's just come back from a scholarship in Europe where she dressed people. And also, mm. now she may come, she may or may not next week because she, um, she's still writing her report. But, uh, that would be... but we'll, we'll get her anyway sometime in the future. We're going to get Jen on, but hopefully next week. But the big one next week, last week we had two guests talking about Stony Creek and the dreadful damage mm. to it from that fire. Melbourne Water got back to me. Uh, I, oh. I mentioned they hadn't and I thought it, that was it, but they got back and apologised and in fact they're happy to come on next week and discuss what they're trying to do to Sony oh, Creek. So we're going to have Melbourne Water on next week talking about That's quite about a coup. And they, they were going to send something to you. Did you get anything? Uh,
3: I got an email saying that they will send me an email. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well got it At least you got the address right. <laughs> and
4: uh, we might still be able to do some disability related stuff because it's dis- uh, International Day of Persons with Disabilities on December, on December the 3rd, the 3rd yeah, so which is also
0: Eureka Day. It's a, both well, yeah. there you go. Yeah, it's well, very great. excellent day. Yeah. 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 Okay, so that's it. Look piano. Thanks for coming in. And next month, next month's our last one of the year, so we'll Cool. And mm. we'll be able to sum up the election and how housing gains yeah. so much and all that sort of thing. Yeah, it'll be all yeah. solved yeah. by next time. <laughs> <not> <laughs> <right. Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot, Piano. Well, thank Gorg you. From Housing the Action Group and uh, team. That's it.
4: See you next yeah. week. Yeah.